Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. This week, the battle between Governor Stitt and Oklahoma's public education has escalated even further. The state election board released the annual voter registration tallies, which are interesting, and the bill filing deadline has now officially passed. We'll talk about some of the bills that have come across our inboxes from the uh, slew of press releases that came out today. Um, And as we've said before, most of the bills you hear about right now are bad and hopefully won't go everywhere, but we do want to highlight a few that just might. Uh, let's, uh, well, joining me, of course, are my lovely co-hosts, Bailey Perkins-Wright. Hello. Hello, Andy. And Dr. Scott Melson. What's up? What's up? Uh, good to see you both. Happy Friday. It is much nicer weather today on this Friday than it was yesterday. Holy moly. Yesterday was so cold. It just cut right through you. Cuts like a knife. And the wild part is, is the weather's just supposed to get warmer. So it's like, is it winter or is it? spring fall summer that's right what's funny is my uh my neighbors here that i that i frequently watch out the window while we record he's not using his leaf blower but he was hauling his uh giant christmas decor which was like a four foot tall um a a paper mache teddy bear on top of a, a present box and it's just funny to see someone like carrying that anytime out of context especially you know just on a bright sunny day is it that there are no leaves to blow, or is it that it's too co- too cold for for leaf blowing activities, or or what do you think is the uh, the reason? Neither of those things will stop him, Scott. You know this. The man will will blow leaves like the he's like the post office. Come, you know, rain, sun, snow, whatever. The none of those those leaves blow. If you if you got a good leaf blower, you can use it to blow snow. You know that I've done this myself. Admittedly, it appears to be getting out other decor, but there's a chance that during the episode he may get out the leaf blower. However, he does have the new battery-powered one, and it is much quieter. Does he hate you, and that's why he does this every Friday at three? Or no, he does it uh, throughout the week. He also, I think, is uh, increasing his karaoke time again. Yesterday, in the middle of the afternoon, for a couple of hours, he was karaoke, uh, which was entertaining. You know, we can. It really only carries to the houses on either side of him and you can't hear it like just in the street, but it like kind of resonates through the walls. And so we can hear the music pulsing. Is he good? No. So he's not one of those guys that like puts his karaoke on YouTube and has like 10 million followers. And well, he might. Um, he's like pays for his mortgage that way. It, no, he very well might. I don't believe he works. Um he uh it's a vietnamese family and the karaoke is in vietnamese and so i don't understand i don't recognize Ah. the songs um Ah. but they have friends over all the time and family and they do it almost every week uh and then sometimes during the week during the day he does it as well and i've wondered maybe he is like a huge internet star i just don't know it he's super nice i mean we've you know our kids have played together and we did uh halloween and stuff together and uh real nice but anyway we uh we are way off base wow this is an <laughs> exceptional start to the episode. Let's uh, let's reel it in and back well, up. What the, list, what the listeners don't know is we've actually been we've actually been sitting here talking politics for the last half hour, and we're like, we should just start recording it at uh, some yeah. point. <laughs> Got it all out. Well, let's start the episode um, with talking about the numbers. Uh, so, according to the state election board, as of January fifteenth, two thousand twenty-two of this year, uh, Oklahoma has two million. 
218,374 registered voters. So we'll call it 2.2 million. Uh, and that is actually 54,000 fewer voters than the state had one year ago. Uh, now, of course, think back to that one year ago in January of 2021 was just after the 2020 election, which we knew was a historic turnout uh, in every state, right, including in Oklahoma. And that meant historic registration numbers. Apparently, 54,000 of those have fallen off the list. But also, maybe the insurrection that happened may have had influence on that decline. It could. I mean, it really has turned a lot of people off of just civic engagement in general, right? People don't, when you see polling, voters don't like that kind of stuff, which is good. We should not like insurrection. Well, and I also wonder, we've got 54,000 fewer voters. How many of them fell off? How many of them were removed from the rolls, right? So periodically, periodically, per the Constitution, I believe it's constitutional mandate, uh, the state election board goes through and they remove people from the rolls for non-participation, people that have been confirmed to die, moved out of state. Like, There's lots of different reasons, but there are... I, I wonder how many of these people are people that were taken off maybe had voted in 10 years, passed away, you know, some something of, of that nature. It is interesting, though, because Oklahoma has had a significant net population increase. And so you would expect that number to go up, not down. Well, but we have an increased number of voters now, right? Isn't the number higher overall? No, the, the total number is, is 54,000 lower than it was oh. last year. Um, but I mean, we have had, honestly, we've had, you know, more than, I think more than 10,000 deaths from COVID in the last year, yeah, most of them adults, yeah. right? I don't know if they were all registered, but when you think about stuff like that, you can understand um, what the, uh, what the change looks like. Now, when we look at the party breakdown, um, as you've probably seen, Republicans on the whole gained um, uh, percentage wise, right? But they they lost some numbers overall. Democrats lost more. Democrats lost 51,000. Republicans lost 16,000. And then independents and libertarians both gained. Uh, there's 11,000, almost 12,000 more independents and uh, about 2,000 more libertarians. Uh, so there's, it's almost 18,000 libertarians, but that's an interesting shift. Uh, and, and then trends that we see nationwide, right? That, that independent or unaffiliated voters are continue to grow their their share of the pie. Y'all ever wonder what would happen if you just took all the libertarians and they had to live together in the same place? Like just I would see what happens if all the libertarians live in the same town and like what happens when you put them all together and they actually like live out their libertarian ideology. Like do you think they would all like have gardens and like raise their own chickens and goats and pave their driveway but otherwise just like drive on dirt roads or like not have electricity or would they be like oh collective action does matter i don't i don't think they're opposed to collective action i think they are opposed to government in many ways right and there's and i the libertarians i know would recognize that there is some level of government that's appropriate it's just way less than what we have right now uh sure sure I'm going to be quiet because I'll get in trouble if I start saying too much on this on this subject. They, they could be quite happy in their libertarian commune, for all we know. Net net decrease in voters, which is not uh, 
not great news. Uh, I'm I'm curious to see what happens. This is an election year. There will be lots of groups on both sides of the aisle doing voter registration drives and pushes as we go through the year, trying to wrap up participation in uh, the primaries, etc. So uh, we'll see what this number does. The the uh, election board publishes this uh, every month. You can get updated numbers. So uh, we'll see what it looks like as the years the year moves on. Yeah, I've got a, I have a graph where I've been tracking this for the last couple of decades. I need to update with these new numbers and identify the trends. I do love a good graph. Um, Anyway, this week, man, I guess, you know, one of the big news things this week was that on Tuesday, Governor Stitt issued an executive order authorizing all state employees to serve as substitute teachers in an effort to keep schools open. And this was in collaboration with the state chamber. Right. Yeah, that's right. So the state chamber has a site where people can register, I suppose, okay. if they're interested, or I don't I know what the purpose of the site is for. But Well, so I, I, I'm going to ask Bailey and Scott both an important question here. But before, just to clarify, the website that the state chamber put up is just a splash page. And when you click the button to like volunteer, it takes you to the state department of education website and then there you have to like click a button to go into the thing to find the school so they didn't actually create a website they just created a website with a button that links to a page that already exists to do the same thing and so it was just like when they asked uh, in the press conference they asked chad warmington i think with the the state chamber of like so you didn't actually create a new like portal to do it you just linked to one that already exists and he was like yeah that's pretty much what we did so um all things considered so this um this plan this executive order right that the governor's put out to um, keep schools open bailey i'll start with you was this a good use of state resources or a bad use of state resources i think if we had agencies that had the adequate adequate resourcing that they needed and we had uh, an abundance of state employees who all had, you know, the resources to be able to stop what they're doing. And, you know, they weren't overwhelmed with all of the, the things that we're facing in this time. You know, I would say, okay, it's an idea, right? But I think one of the challenges is it feels short-sighted when a we've had the issue of um a teacher shortage and which also means that support staff shortage right um for a long time like we haven't if if we have a teacher shortage that means we can't keep pace with the long-term subs that are also needed for school right and one of the complaints that people say is that like it takes a while for people's info to get processed, to do background checks, to then get them into schools, to be able to, you know, get into a classroom, which rightfully so though, right? We don't just want any and everybody in classrooms with our kids. Um, We want to make sure that, you know, they have, they're doing right by our kids, right? (laughs) We got to take care of our kids. Um, But I, I, I don't feel like it's a, it's a, it, it feels like a square in, in a peg hole, right? Like yeah. it, it, it doesn't meet 
a long-term need. And I just wonder, because also I read that, and I don't know if this is just OKCPS or if this is all the districts, but they were saying that like, if you're a qualified teacher and you're subbing, you would get paid $80 a day. If you are, uh, if you have like a degree, you would get $70. If you just have a high school diploma and you're in a classroom, you get $55 a day. And I just wonder like, what are other things that we could do with those resources to really get at the heart of the issue that's going to exist even after the next three months, right? And also I, I read many of the, the posts and frustrations by administrators and educators who feel insulted, right? They feel that they're being treated as if anybody could do their job, that they're expendable, and it's not easy teaching in classrooms, right? I mean, I have a seven-year-old stepdaughter and it just feels like rocket science working with her on her homework, right? <laughs> so I, I can't imagine, you know what I'm saying? Like someone who's never stepped foot in a classroom or hasn't been taught about um, the pedagogy and the teaching that understands social emotional learning that has the lens to um, work with classroom decor, uh, decorum, right? Like to then just go in and, and be with these kids for, for as long as we need them to, right? And so hopefully maybe the, the, the silver lining is maybe more people who are talking about what education needs to do and all this kind of stuff will now have their eyes opened about what truly goes into teaching. So I think that's the, the biggest eye opener that I could possibly see as an outcome of this <laughs> well Bailey, good news for you um is that if uh senator stanridge i think it's stanridge gets his way um they won't have to worry about understanding social emotional learning because he introduced a bill uh that would make social and emotional uh learning and curriculum illegal to use in uh in schools so that that's going to be a non-issue by the time we you know, by the time this actually happens no Who needs not these children they don't need the soft skills no, this, this is a stupid freaking idea, okay? Like, look, it's like it's a PR stunt. I mean, I think you can get to you can get to a universe. Here's what I'll say. You can get to a universe where this actually might make some degree of sense, okay? Um if you were taking maximum effort, like if you if you were implementing maximum efforts to try and mitigate the spread of COVID in schools, right? And, and trying to keep schools open so that parents don't have to stay home from work and, and, and like, I could see where that would make sense. But when you take people and not requiring them to wear masks, not requiring them to be vaccinated, no COVID mitigation efforts in the school itself. I mean, you're just expanding the pool of people to get infected, right? So you're going to take a bunch of underpaid and overworked state employees, put them into another situation where they're under underpaid and overworked. They're at least as, if not more likely to get COVID, then they're going to be out from their job for five to 10 days, depending on how sick they are, maybe longer, and tax state services even more, right? Um, I think that this was an attempt by the governor to say that he's doing something, right? It's to it's an attempt to mitigate the criticism that he hasn't done anything. I well, think in it's fact, his, his communications director said, you know, take note. 
the the governor's first executive order of the year is is focused on our kids, right? Like right, right. It's a it's a cam it's a it's a campaign move. It's a PR stunt, and I think as much as anything, it was designed to get us talking about this, not just us, but like larger us, like big us. It was designed to change the conversation to the governor and what he is or isn't doing to fight COVID and away from the fact that our hospitals are overburdened, that our medical system is collapsing, that we have more patients in the hospital for COVID than at any point in the pandemic, that our daily numbers are higher than they've ever been, that people are dying, that people are sick, and that kids, that this is happening to kids in a way that it hasn't in any previous phase of the pandemic. And that's why there are issues with schools in the first place. Right. It's an attempt to talk about what the governor is or isn't doing as opposed to talking about the actual issue and all the things that the governor hasn't done that contribute to it. Um, it's a it's a shiny object. Look over here. Look at this um, and pay no attention to the disaster that's unfolding, not even in slow motion anymore. The disaster that's happening in real time in front of your eyes. And Scott, we can't forget that, like, the press conference about this EO happened on the same day that our major hospitals also had a press conference talking about, we have no capacity, right? Like That's a coincidence, Bailey. That was a coincidence. That just happened. That wasn't premeditated. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I certainly agree with both of you. And, and to Scott's point there, this, um, the, the, the problem is not schools closing, right? That is a problem, but that problem is a symptom of a larger problem. And that larger problem is, a deadly virus is circling the globe, killing humans by the thousands every single day, right? And our state has not taken the steps necessary to mitigate that spread. And thus, a ton of people have it, right? And that means, I mean, like a quarter of the state has it right now today. Uh, and, and that means that people can't work, right? Because they're legitimately sick. The fact that the, the argument has been that that liberals want to close schools and and conservatives don't is absurd. No, nobody wants to close schools um, for the sake of closing schools. People want to be safe. People don't want to be sick, right? And there's plenty of folks who are like, there. You know, some folks are on quarantine and can't be there because they're exposed or infected. But a lot of folks are sick and can't go to work because they're sick. And it happens to be with COVID, right? And and or the flu that's going around too. So. The idea that the if the well, if we accept that the problem is actually a viral pandemic, right? The virus is spreading wildly through the community, making people ill so that they can't go to work. And the solution then is to treat this symptom by throwing more people in front of the virus. It doesn't help, right? It doesn't address the underlying problem. Furthermore, the way that they went about doing it, both. Um, devalues teachers, right? It says, it says two things. It says teachers, literally anyone can do your job as far as I'm concerned, right? We're just going to put people in there. And then secondly, state employees, you know, you now have two jobs, but you only get paid for one. Like there, I think it implies an expectation that state employees who also are way short staffed, underpaid, underappreciated, right? Uh, that these folks are trying to do whatever they can do to to keep their state agencies afloat and and so where are you going to pull these state employees you're going to pull them from the health department you're going to pull them from dhs are you going to pull them from you know uh, the road and bridge inspectors like we need 
these employees too. And this is the problem. It's a societal problem that I would argue government is uniquely equipped uh, to fix if they would step up and do it, or at least address. So I I agree that it's, a, I mean, as a parent of, of children whose schools and daycares have been closed due to the pandemic, it is a huge inconvenience, right? It is very difficult. I don't necessarily have a better solution. Andy, you do have a better solution, right? Like the solution is, yes, make people wear their mask, right? Make the kids and the teachers wear their masks because we know that's how you reduce the spread, right? Like update their HVAC systems to make sure that fresh air <laughs> is floating, flowing through the schools. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think there are ways that we can keep schools open. We just don't want to follow the science because it's become so politicized in this election season. And it's really sad that that's what we're prioritizing over um, safely making sure our kids are educated and keeping our teachers and support staff safe. You know, I, I think about what what is even the purpose of opening schools? It's clearly not to educate our kids because the folks who are replacing teachers don't have knowledge about the curriculum. They're not able to teach the kids where they need to go to prepare for the exams they'll have to take in the spring, right? Like the purpose of keeping schools open is an economic reason. And that's something we have to name too, that this has nothing to do with our kids. It has everything to do with making sure that there's a babysitting service available that's free to parents, right? And I think that's another irritating factor is that um, the... Well, kids, you know, need to be in a safe place and this and that. And we're throwing police officers to be in classrooms armed in their uniforms among kids who may be facing trauma, right? Well, like, and, that's not and they, were, they, they specified it was on-duty police officers. And, and my first thought was like, well, where would they be if they weren't in the classroom, right? Is there some place in the community now that is less guarded or less safe like you know attention everyone and more if you would like to do crimes now now is the chance to do your crimes because <laughs> all, the police officers the police are, school. Go. are in school so crimes go it, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's exactly right it uh yeah it's just uh so so wild to me that we're here but I really do hope it, that it's an it's an eye opener for people to to truly see what schools experience. Yeah. Well, and and I, I think we said this earlier, but the the fact is, the people who would volunteer won't be able to go through all the steps necessary to get approved to be substitutes. It'll take several weeks. They have to pay for it out of their own pocket, right? They got to pay for their background check themselves. That's not part of the deal. And in a matter of weeks. Uh, if Oklahoma follows the trend of other cities and countries around the globe with this wave, this wave will will be over, right, in a few weeks. It's a steep up and a steep down uh, spike. And so by the time that people get approved, the need may not be there. Now, and the problem is that we've had now multiple waves of, of COVID and we have not adequately prepared for what we now are very certain is going to happen, right? There will be more waves. Things will get bad again. 
We and we have to live our lives. Well, yes, we do. I would like to do literally anything, right? I wear my mask. <laughs> uh, just, I mean, today, uh, as an example, we my father-in-law is moving this week. The movers came to unload the truck today. Uh, we had our masks on. They were going to be in the house, right? And I said, hey, do you guys have masks? And he was like, no, we don't, we don't have them. I was like, no. Well, I can't even ask you to wear one if you don't have one with you, right? And so just this expectation of like, no, why would we even need a mask? I'm like, because there's a viral, there's a there's a mad virus circulating the globe, killing thousands of people every day. Well, <laughs> like, and, and and you know, we haven't even talked about, right? Is the fact that even when COVID, even even when COVID, you know, whether it goes whether you know, whether it, it becomes endemic, whether it's this kind of pulsing, you know peak and valley situation that we've endured so far whatever the pandemic looks like that that notwithstanding we haven't even talked about the fact that like we may be facing an a worsening crisis of educators in this country because of all the things that lawmakers want to do to make their lives harder right there's a survey out uh from stanford children which is an education uh, uh public education advocacy organization that surveyed teachers across the country 92 percent say that students should be able to learn about their historical truths even when they're uncomfortable 94 percent say schools should ensure that no student feels unsafe and visible or unheard um three in 10 teachers nationwide said they may quit their profession in the next 12 months because of the political attacks on teachers and education like that's like that's a disaster right i mean like can you like like think about the teacher shortage in oklahoma right now and imagine if 30 percent of our teachers quit in the next in the next 12 months scott i mean we're asking people who think that we shouldn't teach about arabic numbers in school what their kids should be taught right like there's a lot of people who are not in tuned or don't understand what reality is. I wouldn't even say reality, but like the, have that knowledge about what it takes to be a good global citizen, right? What it takes to have the core skills to know math, science, reading, um, humanities matters, history matters. You know what I'm saying? Like all of those things. So it's, you have, have people who are truly trying to create a narrative in schools and it's scary we're not trusting the people who are experts in crafting what kids should know to run classrooms yeah. like that's scary yeah that's right well uh i'm sure that we will continue to address this i, I suspect some of this is because uh governor stitt is running for re-election and his most uh, notable opponent is the state superintendent, right? So this education battle is being set up. Uh, and I will, I'm just going to say real quick before we move on to discussing bills, isn't it funny that he pushes so hard to say that students, we must have in-person education when last year he was pushing so hard for virtual charter schools? Like, <laughs> it's just like, but, but last year, you were really big on Epic, right? And touting how great they did in this virtual environment. And does that mean that you, you were wrong or you changed your mind or, you know, let's, I know politicians aren't great about uh, acknowledging those kinds of shifts. It just seems a little bit funny to me. Absolutely. Well, and, and it's even strange that the idea of like, you know, the, the money should follow the children is also the conversation, which is going to lead to 
schools that have been marked as failing schools in our A through F grading systems or that have these biases because they're located in low income areas or, you know, predominantly black and brown areas, I, I worry that there's going to be an exodus of kids out of the quote unquote bad schools. And then the quote unquote good schools are going to see this just overwhelming, you know, enrollment to where they may have to decline kids or whatever. Like I, I really am concerned about the narratives placed on our schools and what that's going to mean. Well, I mean, and this is just a continuation. It's the latest iteration of what we've seen for for years, which is this like um, this marketization of everything, right? Like the idea that everything is better if you apply market principles to it. And the market would say, if a school is quote unquote failing, it doesn't need more resources, it needs less. But in fact, we know that the opposite is true, right? Struggling schools don't need fewer resources, they need more. The way to help them improve is to provide more resources, more, more resources, more money, more support. That's how you bring those schools, like uh, that's how you give those schools the tools they need for their students to succeed right public education isn't a free marketplace but some of our lawmakers want to turn it into that and that's just really really bad public policy that's going to disadvantage students that are already facing an uphill climb yeah well and this is a good segue into discussing some of the bills that have been announced this week uh there's roughly 2600 bills that were filed uh, for this upcoming session that is on top of the roughly 3000 bills that remain from last year um, it's a busy year, right? Now, again, we know that the vast majority of these bills won't go anywhere. Typically, somewhere between 10 and 20% of bills make it to the end and are signed into law. That's still several hundred bills that end up becoming law. Um, but uh, Senator Greg Treat, the pro tem of the Senate, one of his bills that he announced today deals directly with that issue of school choice, Bailey, that you were talking about. Uh, and I think the fact that it is being filed by, you know, the the leader of the Senate is very significant as an indicator of whether or not it's likely to pass. And, you know, I'll say, too, and this is not because when we talk about implications of policy, they don't have to have buzzwords in order to um, achieve that thing. Like, right. It doesn't have to say race in the bill language to have racial implications, right? I worry that the legislation is going to lead to further segregation of schools, right? Oklahoma City Public Schools already has had an exodus of white children out of it. It is predominantly black and brown, right? And if you give parents the opportunity to move their child into whatever school district that may seem quote unquote good, what does that mean for children who are in the schools that now have even further, either fewer resources to support those kids, right? What does it say to the schools that are now going to look more white than they already are and they're going to have even more resourcing to support the children in those schools, right? It's going... While the 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 goal is to you know allow the dollars to follow the kid, it's going to lead to further inequity, and I don't think that's been talked about nor thought about with this policy decision. 
Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Because uh, the people that, that leave districts are the ones that can afford to do so and everything that goes along with it, and not everybody can, right? Uh, also, we wanted to discuss uh, a, a bill that was filed by Senator Tom Duggar, uh, and it deals with the Open Records Act. It would have uh, basically doubled the fees uh, and, and allowed for some additional fees to be to be charged to the person requesting records um, and generally making it more difficult to, for the public to access public records. Uh, and it came across on Twitter and, you know, we saw several people, uh, reporters like Steve Lackmeyer, um, groups like Freedom of Information Oklahoma and the Press Association uh, took note and said, well, hang on, what's happening with this bill? It turns out it was requested by the lobbyist, Clayton Taylor, who uh, works with the, the Taylor Group, and they represent, they said they they requested it on behalf of their client, the city of Oklahoma City, which makes sense. It would likely be a government entity that was looking for ways to, you could say, reduce the burden on the agency, or you could say increase the burden on the public, right, to dissuade Obfuscate. them. Yes. Obfuscation. Uh, anyway, in response to a lot of outcry about this saying, hang on, this is not in the spirit of the law and you were thwarting transparency, right? Um, Senator Duggar announced uh, yesterday or today, there's a story in the Stillwater News Press where he said that he had pulled those bills. Once he found out about it, um, he was pulling them and he said, we're trying to, you know, um, uh, make it make the make the open records act more modern um you know there's there's time to discuss that um but it it needs to um if we're going to make changes they should be done in the name of transparency um not uh not in a in a way that would make it less transparent so i'm gonna just take a second translate that for y'all this means that what happened is that a lobbyist requested a bill, a lawmaker filed a bill, there was massive outcry from the people the bill would affect, the lawmaker then went back and read the bill which he had fire, filed and said, oh shit, no, that's not what we want to do. Like, are you, like, are you kidding me right now? Like, I'm, I am not, I am not anti-lobbyist. Lobbyists can provide really, really valuable information. They allow... Uh, lawmakers access to resources to information and expertise that the lawmakers themselves don't have and i think at the state level where lawmakers aren't you know our state legislators they don't they, they have one or sometimes even one half of a legislative assistant right they don't have a whole staff of people that can help uh that that, that can that can help them sort through complex issues but come on right like when a lobbyist requests a bill you got to read it before you file it <laughs> but I, but I will say that like with the Senate, they can file as many pieces of legislation as they want. With the House, they have a cap, right? Of uh, y'all can run eight bills, figure it out. <laughs> and so I, I will say that like they ignore, they all ignore that cap all the time, right? Like. I mean, like, there's House members that file 20 bills, and they say, well, we're only going to hear eight of them. If we even hear those eight, they're like, that's that's cool. I just got to tell my constituents I filed it. Well, but I will say, but at least on the Senate side, where this particular senator serves, they've always been able to file however many bills that they want to. And so members do 
carry bills sometimes that they haven't even read yet. I mean, that's that's a reality of when you're working with different, you know, entities. So, I mean, while, yes, you know, the expectation is if you're going to file it, you should read it. You should know what it says. But um, many of them are doing the best they can. And Andy, one thing I was going to say on the bill, uh, I mean, is, is that they were wanting to charge people for emailed information, like everything that, because it's one thing to say, can you cover the cost of printing so that that's not an onus on the taxpayer, right? Like the city shouldn't print 5,000 pages for you. Okay. okay. But this was literally a opportunity to drive revenue that also stunts transparency because if, if if you're if somebody's emailing a file that you've requested through FOI and you're charging them like what kind of burden is that well i think the bill would have also allowed entities to like basically pass on the cost of legal review right paying attorneys fees which is something they've tried to do and it is illegal it is against the law to do that right now or it's just not allowed it's not it's not a violation it is just not allowed by law and if this would make a change, well, then every public entity would tell every requester, I'm sorry, we have to have our attorney review this before re we release it to you. And you have to pay for that attorney time. No way. That is thousands of dollars for even simple requests. And it is also unnecessary, right? That is why agencies have to have a public information officer that is in charge of this, their records custodian. The law already creates this framework. I agree with Senator Duggar. The Open Records Act, the Oklahoma Open Records Act needs to be amended and modernized. And in fact, when I was with FOI, I mean, up until just the end of last year, uh, we had a lot of, we had retreats. We had a ton of meetings, collected a bunch of inf information to build a plan about what, uh, from the community, about what that modernization could and should look like. So I was glad to see, you know, Mark Thomas uh, chiming in there that he was like, hang on, we're, we're working on this. This bill is not it, but we're working on a, on a way to make it better. And so uh, I I did, to Scott's point, like it's always encouraging to see the democratic process at work when the public can stand up and say, hang on, this maybe isn't the right thing to do. Let's look into it more. And for everyone to pause for just a minute, reflect and realize what's really happening and then uh, and then not do that thing. <laughs> I mean, yes, it's good for him to be responsive, but like... Come on, bro. In the first place, I I get you, Scott. Like, I get it. Come on, bro. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, and, it, and I mean, it really like. Um, I I know that the press was, you know, the the main lobbying group against that legislation, but it truly affects all of us because if the press or other entities can't access that information to shine a light on things, there's so much that could be hidden from us to not know what's truly going on in our government, right? And that just leads to um, potential abuses, right? And and so I, I too, Andy, am glad from a citizen resident perspective <laughs> that that legislation's not moving forward. Yep, yep. Um, there, there are many other bills, many of which are absurd or terrible, um, that we've mentioned, and we are not going to, I think we've made a, a concerted decision this year to not waste time discussing those because there really is a waste of time. Those bills often go nowhere. If at some point 
those bills appear to be progressing. We get word that they're going to, um, and they um, they affect an area of policy which we care about. Um, and you know that tends to be democracy. The budget's important. Um, elections, voting, those kinds of things. Um, as we and there's certainly bills that have been filed about those things, but give us a uh, a couple of weeks and we'll know much more because session starts February 7th. Uh, and and so we'll talk about those bills then, but we're not going to waste time talking about the <laughs> asking, filing the a bill for the, of, of yeah, the Bible to be the state. Wild yeah. There's a bunch of nonsense. I will tell you, and I, I hesitate to even say this because I, I honestly don't know if I'm going to have time to do it. Um, but I have, I have been toying if I can, if I can find the time I have been toying with the idea of taking some of the legislators that are the most prone to doing this and, and kind of going back, uh, digging into the archives as it were, and going back through the records and finding out like how many bills do they propose every year? And how many bills have actually ever signed been signed into law? Like, I would love to know how many bills that I don't know. I'm just going to pull a name out of thin air. Say a Nathan Dom has proposed that have actually been signed into law that were not like, we're going to rename this stretch of highway, right? Like how many bills that actually affect the lives of Oklahomans has somebody like Nathan Dom passed in his tenure in the legislature compared to how many he has proposed that generate a ton of headlines, but almost invariably never even get out of committee. Well, and there's actually information that they'll post about a few lawmakers about their ratio of filing to passage, right? And that even drives lobbyist decisions of deciding who's going to carry their legislation, right? Um, but I'll say that um, one thing that the lobbyists also say is that members bury press releases and their bills in, you know, the headlines um, when they're, when they know that they're not going to get their bill heard, right? This is a, a tactic and a strategy to show that these are the things I want to work on. These are ideas that I have to make sure that they can at least have something they can point to when it's time to get on the campaign trail. So many of the pieces of legislation that go through the process do not get press releases. They often go through the process and then they may have um, um, reporters who are, you know, talking about whatever legislation through the process. But when we see, you know, the Sean Roberts clog up our, our email list of all of the wild headlines, that's usually a signaling that, that's a member who's not typically effective or a Nathan Dom, right? And in, in getting substantive legislation to the finish line signed into law. Ooh, speaking of Sean Roberts, we should mention that he's running for Congress for CD3. Um, and it's important to remember now that the new maps, CD3 includes South Oklahoma City. So if you live in Oklahoma City, as I know many of our listeners do, uh, it, even if, if you live in the Plaza District in Oklahoma City, you would be in his district. Uh, and so you should, his website is seanrobertsforcongress.com. You can uh, you can figure that out by Googling very easily. If you haven't, if you're unaware of him, um, you should pay attention. He will be running against incumbent Frank Lucas, who I believe is running for re-election. 
um, that's he'll be he'll be challenging him from the right. Like it's safe to say. Um, speaking of other lawmakers, we should acknowledge that uh, Representative Jose Cruz, um, who's a Democrat from South Oklahoma City, um, has submitted his resignation. It is effective uh, at five o'clock today, I believe, uh, on, on today's Friday, the twenty-first. Um, he cited some. Uh, he referred to it as inappropriate behavior, it, uh, conduct by himself on at a New Year's Eve gathering. Um, so uh, that is one less seat in the House. There will not be a special election for that seat because the law states that if there's a vacancy in an election year, that you just wait in, until November, which kind of makes sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense to have someone go through the months of of filing and campaigning and primaries and all that stuff. Just literally turn around and do it again. Yeah. And I'll say, Andy, that for those who are listening who may live in the district, um, there will still be a legislative assistant in that office that you can call, um, share your thoughts. Um, but also you have Senate representation. And so for those who live in that district, any concerns you have, you can also reach out to your state senator um, and share perspectives on on bills. So I don't want people to feel like that they don't have an outlet at all for their representation. But in these instances, you still have state senate representation. And and the caucus has been clear too that they'll they'll be kind of reaching out through the legislative system and other folks uh, to that constituency to to say like, Hey, what's, what's going on and what can we do to help and support and make sure that, uh, make sure that the, that district has, has the representation that they deserve. And if you happen to live in his district, uh, everyone who lives in Jose Cruz's district, that's district, uh, 89, you also then live in either Senator Michael Brooks or Senator Kay Floyd's districts. So, um, most of it's in in Senator Brooks's district. The northeast corner um, is closest to downtown. That part is in Senator Floyd's district. So um, you can always reach out to them for help or support as well. Uh, last thing we had on our list this week, and we can talk about anything else we want to, of course, uh, but breaking today... Uh, the Supreme Court of these United States uh, has granted petition for a writ of certiorari, I think is how you say it. Anybody correct me if I'm wrong? Um, uh, granted, in a, granted cert. Granted cert. There you go. In the case of uh, Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta, um, this is a case that had two questions. The first question was, one, um, does a state have an authority to prosecute non-Indians who commit crimes against Indians in Indian country? And the court has granted uh, has granted cert in that question. However, uh, and y'all, I'm just, brace yourselves. This is going to be shocking. It's going to be dismaying. You're going to not believe what I'm about to tell you. However, the court has declined to take up the second question, which is, should they overrule the McGirt decision? So, yet again, the Supreme Court has said no. That's a very important <laughs> distinction there. The awkwardness is that the governor on social media released a statement saying that the decision was a huge win. So... 
the governor has the, the governor has shown a uh, truly remarkable uh, inability to understand the Supreme Court and their decisions and what they mean. Um, because it says Governor Stitt applauds Supreme Court decision to address McGirt fallout. So I feel like so, this is yeah. I feel like this is one of those things that the governor is going to try to claim as a victory when it's it's a nothing burger. It's not really a thing, right? Like also it could be solved anyway. Like if the governor and the state would come to the table and actually negotiate with the tribes and work out these agreements, which we've done for, I mean, literally a hundred years. They've, they've already been doing it. Right. So that's something that I've learned because um, I'm in leadership Oklahoma this year. And, and one of the panels that we sat in was related to um, tribal sovereignty and McGirt. And there are many tribal nations that have um, inner agency agreements, I guess um, with different communities. So they've already, even well before McGirt, uh, law enforcement agencies in different communities were already partnering with tribal law enforcement on a range of, of, of things. And that collaboration had been there. It just feels like this ruling now politicizes, I guess, <laughs> or even just like makes people forget that those relationships, they didn't exist in, you know, every community, but in a lot of communities, that cooperation had already been there. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and I mean, so much of this has been uh, making a mountain out of a molehill. In many cases, I mean, dealing with issues that have already been resolved, but talking about them weeks later. And uh, just as a reminder, because the rhetoric is still there, this is not a racial issue. This is a legal issue. Right, like it's it's about jurisdiction, um, in the same way that it might be between a a city and a county and a state of who has jurisdiction over a certain issue. Um, this is between the state of Oklahoma and a sovereign nation uh, or nations, right? In this case, uh, not about the race of the people who live there. Thank you for lifting that, Andy, because that is an important distinction that membership and. Um, ethnicity like there it's not the same thing like we're not we're not race and in in affiliation aren't the same thing so thanks for bringing it back to the systems conversation because i think there's even confusion there from those who um are against the mcgirt decision about that distinction well and i think in a environment where racial animus has been a motivating factor um at least for one party if not both right at different times uh, i think it's important to recognize like that this is a, a legal issue right like we can we can pull some of that emotionality out of it right not that it's not emotional or not important but the arguments that are trying to be made by the governor uh, are definitely hinging on this uh like anxiety or fear and like there's a, a racial element component of it and i mean because i say that because he said people are treated differently by the law because of their race that is not the case they're treated differently by the law because of their of their residency membership citizenship right so treated differently by the law because of their citizenship in a sovereign nation that happens to be uh based within our borders yeah. our borders right um and this wouldn't have been an issue to be clear, this would not have been an issue if 
America and the state of Oklahoma had continued to recognize those tribal nations reserve like lands for the last hundred or whatever years. The fact that the state didn't is the problem. And the con and the SCOTUS had to come in and say, no, no, those were not disestablished. Those nations still exist. That's the problem, right? We messed up and now we're trying to make the other side fix it. Let's hey, know. Andy, um, the fact that you're saying that makes me uncomfortable. And I'm pretty sure there's at least two bills that say, since it makes me uncomfortable that you said that you're not allowed to say it. So yeah, just go ahead and just go ahead and stop. Just, just zip it. Zip it. I can't handle the discomfort. I got, I got several Jewish friends who are already uncomfortable with the fact that the Bible would be the state book. In which case, if the librarian doesn't remove it immediately, she can be terminated and not rehired for two years. That's what the bill like. This is this is why we're not talking about these bills, Scott, because they're absurd in competing directions. Right. Absurdity of Bill A intersects in the absurdity of Bill B, and they both are rendered moot. But also to, to bring it full circle to even our education conversation. Right. This is why, like individual households and people's political perspectives have to stay out of building curricula, right? <laughs> we got to leave that to the professionals, right? So that we're not um, getting into the discussions of whether, you know, if that's the state book, do kids have to read the Bible in, in school, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, it's... Uh... That's right. Also, uh, let's just say discomfort is a part of life. Can we all? We've all been uncomfortable at some point. In That's how this country and this state was built on discomfort, right? That's how you grow. We right? were we were built on trauma. That's right. That's we right. Got to acknowledge that. <laughs> well, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Bailey, thank you for being here today. Oops, I muted myself. Of course, thanks, Andy. <laughs> Scott, thanks for being here. Man, I wouldn't miss it. Everybody be safe. If you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated. Please wear your masks. And I promise the Omicron thing is going to be over sooner rather than later. I think we're looking at another, oh, three weeks or so. But I think after that, we'll be kind of back. Uh, I'm not going to say back to normal, but at least back to pre-Omicron. Back to the the old level of horror and trauma that we have, have grown used to. The previous version of the hellscape that was relatively stable, as opposed to this newish version of the hellscape. All right. Well, um, listeners, thank you for being here as well. Um, please uh, stay tuned. Uh, don't watch too closely now. I mean, pay attention to bills. Look for stuff that matters. Um, we have a video on our website about how to track legislation. It's on our YouTube channel. And I think Senator Kurt shared it. I forgot that we even made it. That's um, pretty helpful if you were interested in tracking legislation and just searching to see what's out there. You know, one of the things we like to search for every year is the word sunscreen. Just looking for keywords. Sometimes you get interesting bills about uh, teachers being disallowed from applying sunscreen to a child's face. Uh, that bill did not become law. Um, uh, to the extent you can, um, be safe. You know, always wear a mask if you're in public. Keep your distance. Do those things. I know these are reminders that many of our listeners already know. Wash those hands with soap yeah. and water. That's right. Seconds. Just do the thing that you know you should do to protect yourself and the people around you your family, and even strangers. Wouldn't that be nice? Let's all just be safe together. All right. Uh, and also, don't forget that decisions are made by those who show up. We'll see you next week.